Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley, and thanks so much for listening to this episode of my podcast. Later, I'll be talking to acclaimed photographer Chester Higgins about his new installation, The Indelible Spirit, at the Bruce Silverstein Gallery in New York, and about his new book, Sacred Nile, due this fall. But first, Vice President Kamala Harris has a large portfolio, larger than many of her predecessors, and probably as large as any vice president has had in my lifetime. She's already been tasked with finding ways to address the root causes of migration from Central America, yet this latest assignment could well be a defining one both for her and President Joe Biden. On the day commemorating the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre, the president told the nation that the vice president would lead the charge on voting rights. And make no mistake, stakes are high, and there is a charge needed. There are more than 389 bills in 48 of the 50 states seeking to one degree or another to curtail voting rights. That's right, 389 bills in 48 of the 50 states. The rationale for the greatest attack on the right to vote since the end of Reconstruction, non-existent voter fraud. These attackers on democracy know that argument is flimsy, so they've constructed a new one. Upholding the integrity of the vote is necessary to mollify those who think the non-existent fraud is real, that is, those who voted for the former president. Now, understand what's at work here, and I've talked about this before. You have right-wing media and right-wing politicians alleging voter fraud where none exists, having audit after audit after audit where each of the audits has found no substantial voter fraud, yet they continue to caterwaul about the need to make sure that the democracy is safe by suppressing some people's right to vote. That's where we're at. And anybody who tells you differently is lying to you. Because you got all these people in all these state legislatures across the country saying, oh no, this has nothing to do with vote fraud. We just want to make sure that the vote is in fact efficient and is in fact the actual count. Now, they have no evidence to say that it isn't, but they say they want to make sure it is. And why do they want to make sure it is? Because there are people all over the country they, they wail and say, people all over the country don't trust the vote. Well, whose responsibility was that? The media who told them that Donald Trump actually won the election. That's who. The media, the politicians, all these different people who have been trumpeting this straight up lie. And now they want to try and balance the lie with all kinds of laws to suppress the vote. It's ugly. It is truly, truly ugly. They've been aided and abetted, these folks, these uh, people who are perpetrating these frauds, as I mentioned by the right-wing media. This is what Vice President Harris is up against. She will use her bully pulpit to push back against, uh, for example, curtailment of early voting. Yet I think she'll also be guided by the ghosts of civil rights leaders of the past. People like John Lewis, people like Medgar Evers, people like Martin Luther King, 
people like the four little girls who died in an act of terror against the Birmingham church, they'll all be looking down on the work that Kamala Harris is tasked to do. And I've confessed this in previous podcasts a while ago, and I might as well say it now. I was one of those who thought there was no way on God's green earth that the voting rights that we had become accustomed to in the late 60s, early 70s, through the 80s, I thought that stuff was sacrosanct. I thought it had been written into law, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. I thought there's no way that these folks would try and take us back to the end of Reconstruction. I was wrong. And certainly the turning point there was 2013 when the Supreme Court voted 5-4 to four to knock out two key provisions of the Voting Rights Act. And this voter suppression, which would not have happened had not the Supreme Court opened the door, are now in full bloom. 389 bills. The result of the 2020 election presented the Trumpian wing of the Republican Party with a dilemma. How could they remain viable in the wake of their leader's defeat? The answer lies in the old, fetid, white supremacy playbook. If you can win on the up and up, fine. If you cannot win on the up and up, shrink the vote. It's worked before, why not now? Reduce the number of ballot boxes. Shrink the window for early voting. Adding even more photo ID requirements. And if that doesn't work, let state officials circumvent county officials if the state officials don't like the results of an election. This is where we're at. And it's sad. And keep this in mind. The day after the the Supreme Court ruled in 2013, when they knocked out those two key provisions, it turned out that the state of North Carolina, the day after, started work on a voter suppression bill that was later struck down. The uh, The U.S. Court of Appeals ruled that North Carolina's efforts targeted African Americans with almost surgical precision. Those are their words, not mine. So this is what the vice president faces. Her best hope of beating back these state-by-state assaults on the votes of people of color is the For the People Act, the most far-reaching expansion of voting rights act, of voting rights that is, since the Voting Rights Act. It's got the votes in the House, but its future in the Senate could well depend on whether Democrats can kill the filibuster which would allow the bill to pass with a simple majority rather than 60 votes. But the vice president has another river to cross. As Frank Bruni points out in the New York Times, right-wing politicians, pundits, and media have decided that since they don't have Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama to demonize anymore, they focus their ire on Kamala Harris. And this was before Biden's announcement on voting rights. Vice President Harris asked for this gig, and she's under no illusions about its difficulty. Yet she really must succeed, lest we cede American democracy to right-wing partisans who are determined to underpin all the worst elements of the previous administration. When Donald Trump hints at a return to the White House, whether it's this coming August 2024 or whenever, he's depending on Republican-dominated state legislatures 
to disenfranchise cities with large communities of color. And the major impediment to all this is, in fact, Kamala Harris and the ghosts of those who fought and died for the right to vote. And another thing, the Democratic Party can't let the vice president stand alone on this. That's right. There are those, and I, am, I happen to be one of them, who feel the Democratic Party and its apparatus, whether it's the campaign committees or whatever, they have not spoken up forcefully enough, nearly forcefully enough, about this issue. Now, Congress could well flip to the GOP if the party doesn't put its clout and resources behind voter expansion. We hear so much about voter suppression. How about let's talk about voter expansion? We know the Republicans have no case regarding voter fraud, and they know they have no case regarding voter fraud. Voter suppression is racism, pure and simple. It's time every Democratic elected official, including state legislators, start saying so. They can follow the lead of Texas Democrats, who temporarily stymied a suppression bill in that state by walking out before a vote could be taken. If voter expansion takes destroying the Senate filibuster, so be it. As I said earlier, stakes are high, high enough to risk the downside of ending the filibuster that was used historically, I might add, to thwart efforts at enforcing the rights of black people. Kamala Harris needs to have the full weight of the American people behind her as she sets about her task. Up next, Memorial Day cancel culture rears its ugly head in a small Ohio town. This is The Intersection. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, public enemy number one, and you are listening to The Intersection with my hero, Mark Riley. What's happening in your world? Is there an issue you'd like me to talk about? Hit me up with a comment on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Hudson, Ohio is a town of about 22,000 people located about 15 miles north of Akron. Like many American cities and towns, Hudson held a Memorial Day commemoration to honor those servicemen and women who died serving their country. It was sponsored by the local American Legion Post. This story actually resonated with me because as a kid, I spent a great deal of quality time in and around American Legion Post, VFW Post, Fraternal Order of Elks Post, every post you could think of, I spent time in and around. And I found the people who were part of the American Legion, who I initially was very nervous about being around, but I found them to be really, really good people in the main. I marched in a number of drum and bugle corps that were sponsored by the Legion. Suffice to say, again, I have a soft spot in my heart for that organization. Anyway, one of the speakers at Hudson, Ohio's Memorial Day service was a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel named Barnard Kempter. During his speech, he correctly pointed out that Memorial Day, one of the first commemorations of Memorial Day, shortly after the Civil War, was organized by a group of freed black slaves. They organized a tribute to Union soldiers at what had been a Confederate prisoner of war camp in Charleston, South Carolina. 
Colonel Kempter, who fought in the Persian Gulf War, had just gotten to that part of his speech when his microphone was cut off. He later told a reporter that he thought it was just a technical glitch. It wasn't. Turns out it was cut off deliberately by the event's organizers. They disapproved of his mentioning the black contribution to Memorial Day. In an interview, one organizer, Cindy Sushan Rothkari, said Mr. Kempter's remarks were, quote, not relevant to our program for the day, and that the theme of the day was honoring Hudson veterans. That's a quote. Talk about cancel culture? Cancel culture? Cutting off a mic because you don't know what a war veteran was getting ready to say about black people? That is cancel culture at its absolute worst. Now, to its credit, the Ohio American Legion acted decisively. They suspended, pending closure, the Hudson American Legion post. The other organizer involved in censoring Barnard Kempter, James Garrison, resigned as a post officer. They knew, now you might ask yourself, how in the world would they have known when to cut the mic? Well, they knew because they received a copy of the speech in advance. And there was a lot of back and forth. Apparently, the woman, uh, Cindy Sushan Rothkari, made corrections and told Colonel Kempter that there were certain parts she wanted taken out. But when she sent it back, she didn't have those corrections, course, whatever kind of corrections, on her computer. So he just got it back and decided to deliver the speech. Now, a few things ought to be clear from this obviously shameful episode. First, there are people who feel perfectly entitled to cancel black history whenever it suits them. Never mind, they brought international attention and disrepute to an entire town and had an American Legion post suspended pending closure. That's the thing I don't understand. It, it absolutely boggles my mind. I can't figure out how people think they can get away with this sort of thing and totally escape scrutiny. Totally. And in this case, obviously, they didn't. And these people were covered, this incident was covered internationally. What did James Garrison and this woman, Cindy Sushan Rothkari, what did they think was going to happen? That he would just ignore it? Or when they cut off the mic and they cut it off when he started talking about uh, the, the contribution of freed black slaves and turned it back up again when he finished. It was obvious, obvious what they were doing. They were canceling a war veteran. Simple as that. Now, progressives are constantly harangued by the right over the issue of cancel culture. They bring up all manner of trivia to buttress their case. Oh, they don't like statues. Oh, they don't like this. Oh, they try and cancel people for things they post on social media, which, by the way, I don't always agree with. All right. Um, but such are the wages of social media, sad to say. And social media, of course, amplified 
this particular story. Yet what is this story if it's not cancel culture? There is hopefully one silver lining in all this mess, however. Maybe next Memorial Day, there will be more people who recognize that there was a massive contribution to honoring war dead that started with black people. Maybe, just maybe, that will come across. Let's hope, shall we? Our last segment is a conversation with an old friend, award-winning photographer, Chester Higgins. Stay with us. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Chester Higgins has had a long and distinguished life journey. He started in rural Alabama and rose to become a staff photographer for the New York Times. He's also traveled extensively with a focus on Africa. He has an exhibition of his work in New York City and a book coming out in the fall. We talked about his work, past, present, and future. My guest is an acclaimed photographer. I've known him for many, many years. Knew him when he was working at the New York Times. What was that, 1975 to 2014? And right now, he's got two projects that are just absolutely exciting. One is called Indelible Spirit. It's an exhibition at the Bruce Silverstein Gallery. Yep, in Chelsea. In, in Chelsea, in Manhattan. And the other is an upcoming book called Sacred Nile. We're going to get into both of those. But right now, I want to welcome Mr. Chester Higgins. How you doing, Chester? All right, my brother. Good to see you. Good to see you. Let me start out by asking you to talk a bit about your experience in the segregated South and how that actually ended up informing your vision of photography. Well, you know, it helped because, you know, the segregated South, we knew that, that white people hated us. So there was never a question about in and out. In fact, you know, being in the presence of a white person was the most terrifying place you could be because really? they were capable of killing you and not being able to be punished for it. So it was like being almost in, in a cage with a rattlesnake, never knowing when and if the rattlesnake would strike. Wow. So that the, so that the, because of that, the dearest moments were the moments that we spent among ourselves. And now a few institutions that are, gave us the freedom to be, a, to be, to display our humanity among ourselves other than home uh, would have been the church and the segregated schools and uh, the barbershop. Uh -huh. So in, <clears throat> when I went to Tuskegee I went to a civil rights demonstration in Montgomery, um, I was struck by the fact that the way we were portrayed in the newspaper and the television was not as American citizens petitioning the government. Rather, we are portrayed as potential thugs, arsonists, and rapists. Mm. Now, on one hand, that wasn't the, a surprise because in the South, the media has always portrayed our people in a pejorative way. We were either criminals or sex workers. But being a part of this made me realize for the first time how the um, two things, <clears throat> that the camera, uh, the and, the, and what it produces never lies about the person who's making the picture. Mm -hmm. 
Secondly, so if the person hates me, the picture is going to show they hate me. Mm-hmm. Secondly, is that <clears throat> there's another side of this that I can only tell. And I picked up the camera initially to make pictures of my relatives in my hometown because, you know, photography was important. It was very expensive. And they only had on their wall uh, uh, almanac calendar and maybe a picture of Jesus Christ. And they were people who I grew up with and I loved and respected, very uh, decent, uh, dignified people. And I did not, when I discovered the camera, I said, I do not want them to die without seeing a picture of themselves on their wall to authenticate them. And that's why I learned photography and I went home to do that. But in the civil rights movement, I realized that there was another possibility for this camera, that this camera could document what the whole issue is about. There's a, yes, there's an issue of conflict against white and black, but what it's all about is the, is the, the jewel of our humanity mm-hmm. that we show to each other uh, that uh, distinguishes us. And it's that jewel that I wanted to, that was all around me. And I wanted to turn and look behind me and look at those pictures and look at, look at the meaning of those people's lives, all different ages, and document that and make, make images of that so that uh, we can see ourselves. You know, at the time, uh, uh, Elijah Muhammad was saying, you know, you are what you eat. Yes. And if we're only eating negative images of ourselves. That only reinforces our self tendencies for self-hate. So I wanted to make sure that I can add something that would help the visual the visual diet that we ourselves were consuming. And if our neighbors uh, learned from it and appreciated it, so be it. But what I was doing was for, for our people. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that because as somebody who grew up in the North, uh, we, first of all, were taught to fear anything below Washington, D.C. Uh, and we were kind of sort of taught to almost pity Black people who lived in the South. Like we lived, and it's not like we lived in any great, you know, utopia, but we always thought that black people were catching hell in the South. And one of the things that struck me about your work was the fact that we saw families, we saw groups of people together. Uh, and you say in, in the uh, exhibition uh, that you wanted to do images of black people that reflect the fullness of our lives. Explain what that means to you. Well, the fullness is the moments that that we have the agency to be ourselves. We have the agency to love one another, uh, to be in respectful and loving relationships with our children, with our, our, our spouses, with our parents. Mm-hmm. Um, the simple things that really make life matter. You know, we, you know, um, Flash, you know, is not it. We, you would say you were taught in the South, I mean, in North to, to uh, beware of the Mason-Dixon line. Yes. Well, we were in the South living in, in, hell's, in, in hell's Kitchen, so to speak. And we had mixed feelings about the Northerners. But, you know, the Northerners, a lot of, the, the relative, a lot of our relatives will send their children home to visit their grandparents in the summer. Yes. And we got a chance to know those kids. And those kids, I guess those kids 
then consider, since we lived in a country, a town of 800 people, they probably considered that they were going to camp. Yeah. Because it's not, it's not the urban environment, it's a country environment. But nowhere else but in the country could you um, process your, your aging by going out and picking blackberries and have grandma make a blackberry pie for you. Yes. Where else could you um, just sit around and watch June bugs and, and grow or have, you know, a fresh uh, garden peas and, and vegetables for your lunch and for your dinner and the camaraderie of your uncles and aunts and your cousins. And that's the fullness. That's when you're allowed to grow into the fullness of yourself. You're not restricted by, by um I think that one of the things about urban environments I've discovered, and it happens, you know, it depends on what you, what are around you, but you know, the the problem is that, um, I think that what I really want to say is that I there's a difference between people who live inside of themselves and who live outside of themselves, and those people who live outside of themselves are more attracted to what the appearances are around them and the pressure of those in adopting certain appearances. Mm -hmm. Whereas country people tend not to have, not to be affected because they have spent enough time with themselves, living inside themselves, that they know that to be who they are doesn't require these additional man-made things, more so than the internal thing. So is that fullness, that being comfortable with yourself? Mm -hmm. Comfortable with, uh, with how um, uh, the re your reality, your of people who look like you, um, I think is very healthy, and that's what I wanted to to capture: the healthiness of being inside yourself, the healthiness of being a person of color, and the healthiness of being centered in that in that reality of love. You know, we were in we were catching hell, but you know, like Nikki Giovanni's poem about poverty, we didn't know we were poor. And we didn't know all the hell we were catching because it was being buffeted. Okay. Our yep. parents were, you know, they they were quite clear where we were, and they were on high alert to protect us from certain things. That's how you even got the uh, the Green Book that the Northerners yeah. used when they went back to the South. Where to, because there were the facility, there were no facilities. So where could you go if when your when your child on the road need to use the restroom? So you need to then. You know, pace yourself, but you know there's a place. You know you yeah. can't stop any place. Where is a place of safety? Where is a harbor of safety? And I think that that's what Black people living in catch hell environments, whether it was in the South or even the North, unconsciously, where is a safe place that I can be myself and I can do what is humanly uh, called of me to do and not fear that I will lose my life? Now, what was it like? going to an HBCU at the time you went, which was what, the late 60s? I guess you graduated, yeah. what, 1970? Yeah, I went in 60, started in 64. I loved it so much, I didn't want to leave. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about that. Talk about that experience. What was Tuskegee like then? Well, you know, my mother was a school teacher, and she went to Alabama State. And she said she wanted me to go to the school Tuskegee, this black man found, you know, uh, Alabama State is a state school. Mm -hmm. For some reason, you know, she was in love with Booker T. Washington and she wanted me to go to his school. And, you know, it's, and it's in, a, you know, the Black Belt County of, a, of Macon County. 
So it's a total, it's like an island of black, of black educated professional people in, uh, in Alabama. So your whole existence every day, every month, every year was nothing but black people. <clears throat> black people, not only were they your professors and your doctors, uh, your, um, but they were also your, your janitors and your uh, 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 supermarkets and your uh, gas stations and your laundromat and your, t and your post office. Um, and it was a suburb, there was a couple suburbs around Tuskegee, but it was a, you never had to interface with white people unless they were visiting white professors who were already there because they wanted to be. So they were positive people. So it was an environment where um, you, the, essentially the, the small little cocoon that your parents made for you in an environment of home in the middle of living among white people became a larger cocoon. And in this larger cocoon, young students, black students from all over the country descended upon Tuskegee. And in that mix, you had, you, you appreciated people who came from the North, who came from the West, who came from other parts of the South. You were, it was a commingling of uh, like-minded people with like-minded, and everybody had aspirations, wanted to be professional. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, it was, and Tuskegee, it was very hard on you academically. It, it was only recently did they really get into athletics. They, they didn't care about that. Uh, and it was, so it was a school that you, that it was, I have found people, I've taken people to Tuskegee who went to school at Howard. And they said, wow. I wish I'd known this school existed before. <laughs> Plus, they look at the campus, they look at the buildings. I mean, there's there's thousands of acres to the place, and uh, it's landscaped well. The buildings, everything, just so it's it's an it's an academic environment for uh, that's very uh, peaceful, that's very uh, comforting, and um, it, it was a great place. I had problems leaving. Now you came to New York, not long after graduating. You at that point, I guess, already purchased your first camera, no? Yeah, actually, yeah. I came to New York before graduation. I came in the summer of 69. I purchased my first camera in 67, I think, 67, 68. But I came to New York because, see, back then, unlike now, you could not study photography anywhere. There were no schools. Really? You had to mentor. And I had a mentor. My first mentor who introduced me to the camera was this old man named P.H. Polk, who was a university photographer. And I, I was I majored in business and I went to his house because I hired him for the, in, on behalf of the student newspaper to make photographs to run as business ads. And he didn't have the prints ready. We were on deadline, but he had shot the negatives, thankfully. Mm -hmm. So I had to wait for him to make the prints. And I noticed behind this uh, these black cloak cloth, a cloth on his wall, he had these pictures of old people, very dignified farmers. And I said, what do you, tell me about these pictures. He said, well, I made these pictures during the depression. On the weekend, farmers will come in to go to market and every now and then I'll see a really good character and I'll run out after them and I'll beg them to let them me make their picture and I will offer them $5. Come into my studio, let me make their picture and they're gone. Mm. They had five more dollars to spend in the market for the little fifteen minutes they got to spend with me, and it was not to make money. It was just to. He did it because it was a history he wanted to hold on to, and it made his heart smile. 
he was a guy who first taught me the use of the camera, demystified the process, and who also taught me when I was saved up enough money to get a long lens that I saw a picture in a magazine that produces. And I went, I was very proud about it. And I went by his house to tell him I'm going to go buy this lens. And he said, hold up. So wait, well, what's up? <laughs> he says, there is no lens or camera can make a picture. Only your eye can make a picture. One of the most important lessons I've ever had in my life. Interesting. Because it gave me confidence of, of my, of my, what I'm looking at and how to, and how to appreciate that. Incredible. So then I came in New York in 69 and I went to a newsstand. I looked for all the, the magazines that treated pictures well. I knew I wasn't up to caliber, but I knew that these guys see the best photographers and maybe they can see what I'm missing. So I called them up and I first said, look, I'm a student from Tuskegee. I don't, I'm not looking for a job. I'm looking for criticism. And it was fortuitous that I met the director of photography at Look Magazine, who I had not known, uh, had been to Tuskegee. Really? He had worked with the Farmer Services Administration, a Roosevelt Depression era thing. And you may have heard of Dorothy Lang, who probably did pictures in the West Coast. He was yeah. on this coast. And he went to Tuskegee and he had photographed people in Tuskegee. He didn't tell me this at the time. I learned this years later. So he asked me, he said, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, you know, I don't like the way our people, are put, my people are portrayed in the media and I want to change that. He said, well, that's a pretty tall order. He said, well, let me see what you got. So I showed him my pictures and he looked at them and he put paper on top of it and it cropped. First thing I learned cropping. And he called me, he said, look, that's your picture. And I looked, I was amazed. That was a great picture. He <laughs> said, well, it is a great picture, but you didn't know it because you have all this other stuff that's competing with it. He said, so that whole summer, he took me on his wing day, day after day after day. And he taught me visual linguistics. Visual linguistics. Visual linguistics. He taught me the alphabet of seeing. Hmm. How, so that I can learn how to compose. I can learn the value of light. I can learn angles. I can learn everything. He really set me on the road to learn how to go from being a mediocre photographer to a greater photographer. And then 70, after college, I came back to him and he offered me my first assignments at Look Magazine. My first assignment was following Jesse Jackson for a week. That mm. turned out to be a five-page spread in Look. Then I, did a, then I went to Milwaukee to do a spread on an Afrocentric family. And that one was on the table and then Look went out of business. They got sued for, for uh, libel. Mm. And uh, so October, this is from June to October, I'm working for Look. October that, that that ship goes down and then I and then I have to start uh, freelancing for, uh, for and he helped me with that by introducing me to editors at Newsweek and Time and Life uh, and um, and learning how to work for uh, freelance and that's how I learned and was introduced to um, Ellis Hayslip. Oh yes what a because wonderful I, man. I started working for NET doing publicity pictures for uh, Soul, Soul and, Black, yeah. and Black Journal. Uh, and there's another program called The Great American Dream Machine. Mm -hmm. And then I started doing other television work, uh, promotional work for NBC with Black Journal. Um, but that's how uh, that was part of the mix. I had, you had to do, if, as a freemaster, you got to do a lot of stuff. Yeah, you got to stay on your toes, get busy. Stay on your toes. So, and then I was writing grant proposals, getting grants to do, to travel to Africa um, and doing uh, portraits. So 
you know, just keeping that mix. You know, as they say down south, you got to keep a lot of irons in the fire. Absolutely. Now, Chester, you uh, at a point got to the New York Times. Uh, you worked there for a good long stretch. But what struck me was that even after you finished an eight hour day, you then went out and continued to shoot, continued <laughs> to do your own work. Most people, uh, and I mean, I worked in media for, for a minute, um, but at the end of the day, that was the end of the day. What motivated you to keep going? Well, I wasn't in photography to be at the New York Times. I was in photography for the mission. My mission is to change the equation of how people, how my people are seen and to document the, the richness in our humanity. I'm just inspired by us. And the three things I realized, I analyzed in, in the, from the beginning that there's three things missing in the image of people of African descent. That's the issue of decency, dignity, and virtuous character. Mm -hmm. New York is a laboratory. It's an intense laboratory. Yeah, yeah. In the country, I find things here and there. I, but that was good. I was able to, to cut my teeth, as the old people will say, learn gradually. But now I'm in New York and it's intensified. So I'm doing what I can do at the New York Times, but <clears throat> the New York Times is not why I'm a photographer. Mm. I'm a photographer because I'm in love with showing the, the goodness and the decency and the things about all people that should be appreciated, respected, and exalted. So I'm, yes, those other, I took another eight hours every day for me. Um, there's one picture in Indelible Spirit that struck me like a hammer. And it's the picture of the guy sitting at a counter having a cup of coffee. I don't ask me why, but that particular picture just moved me, partly because I think, you know, I've seen that person, not that individual, but I've seen that person alone at a lunch counter by himself with his own thoughts. And I, I you know, I, I wondered just out of curiosity, what, what lunch counter was that? It was on, um, what, uh, what is the lunch counter that, um, what's that theater that used to be around the corner from uh, Abyssinian Baptist Church, New Lafayette? New Lafayette, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's probably down, down uh, and, and that's what, Frederick Douglass? Uh, Adam Clayton Powell, I think. Adam Green Power, yeah. And then, yes. uh, and you remember the Moon Cafe, which was maybe a couple doors, a couple blocks yes. down? Yeah. Yes, I do. That was where it was. Did, did you set out to, to like capture this particular person at that moment? Because it really did hit me like a ton of bricks. Well, you know, I love what I call interior moments. And I try to capture what I call the signature of the spirit. And I'm a, I'm a, as much as I love people, I love being alone. And I can relate to people in having a, uh, an introspective moment. I'm, I'm attracted to that sort of thing. Um, and, and that was during a period where a lot of times I would just go to Harlem early in the morning, take the mm -hmm. subway. I would go up early in the morning or late in the afternoon just to see because life sort of changes in that point. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I'm attracted to singular moments I'm attracted to moments where people find peace with themselves, where they're working within themselves, because those are the kind of moments that I need and I flourish in as well. So when I see that in someone else, I recognize that and I appreciate it for what it is. 
And um, I try to give an expression, a, a faithful expression of what that is. Tell me a little bit, Chester, if you will, about your first trip to Africa. My first trip to Africa was for Essence Magazine in 1971 to uh, Senegal for, uh, 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 for a display piece. On, and I was just really taken because, you know, well, actually, I wanted to go to Africa in 1970. I had, I had a, a paid for a charter flight and um, I got drafted and I had to go fight the draft and I got out of that. So, but I missed my charter flight. So I went the next year and you know, going the first time to Africa for someone from Alabama and growing up in an environment where you're always given these, the, the worst images of Africa mm -hmm. in the media, the Tarzan. And Africans too. And Africans, the Tarzan and Jane. Mm -hmm. And the most amazing thing is that I had been talking to people about, I want to go to Africa. I want to go to Africa. And, you know, it was the white people who would say to me, well, you know, uh, they don't really like you over there. You know, y'all are different people. <laughs> <laughs> and when I finally get to Africa, I see these huge suburbs and these big um, expensive homes. And guess who's living in them? Yeah. The cousins of the same white people who tell me <laughs> there ain't no place for me. <laughs> but, you know, um, I was apprehensive. Because you know, you don't know which what, what reality I'm gonna find. But when I got there and smelled that air and saw that red clay, and the people, I felt that they that we were cousins to each other. Uh, I was okay. I said, hey, you know, I'm here. I'm I'm experiencing it. I'm trying to show. I'm showing that experience with my pictures, and I'm coming back. So therefore, I have since '71. I have always spent as much time as I could in Africa. Really? Between 70, yeah, the summer, I spent the summers of 72, 73, and 74. 72, 73 in Ghana, 74 in Senegal. And then when I started the Times, in the beginning, I only have one week of vacation. I took that one week. I went to Senegal. <laughs> when, I got, when I got two weeks, I took the two weeks. And I built it up, and gradually I found out that after five or six years, I, gradually, I realized that the Times would give you, you can work overtime which I'm willing, I'm young, I'm willing to do. And I have a choice of taking the money or taking the time. Oh, okay. I took the time. So over after, it was soon after, I had six weeks accrued. Oh. I had a four weeks vacation. I had two weeks, I added on to it. So I would go whenever I went, whether it was Senegal, Ghana, Egypt, Ethiopia, I took my six weeks. And those six weeks, First of all, being in Africa, the first thing you you feel is as a weight that lifts off your shoulder. Really? Yes. You feel that weight of being black in a white world. You feel that weight of suspicion lift. You feel that weight of, of uh, not being accepted lifted. You are in the majority. The few white people you see are looking for each other. They're in the minority. People may not like you because, uh, but it won't be because of the color of your skin. They might like you because of your behavior. That's something I can relate to. So going to Africa was, has became addictive uh, and cheaper than therapy because you, know, you could just hey, go hang out with your cousins, make friends and, and just be. Now, I, being a photographer, I uh, would go on these charter flights 
and you know, it would be full of educators who were spending the summer in Africa, uh, in Ghana. And I would tell people, if you've never been to Africa and you wanna go to Africa, there's only one place I tell you, you should go first. And that is Ghana. Mm. Ghana, the people are the warmest people you will ever find, the most honest people you will ever find, and they're embracing and you will have a good time just being yourself. You <clears throat> only reason they know that you're an African-American because you look like the rest of them is that you move faster. Uh, okay. <laughs> you don't move slow, you know, because that's not the American way. You know, you don't take your time. You just, you know, so yeah, especially start. in New York, it, it, they probably can tell New York is real quick, real quick, but it's just speed. And it took me a while to learn that. And then so when I go to Africa, it usually takes me a week to just de-escalate de my speed. And then people think they think I'm one of them. You know, people speak to you in, in Twi. They don't speak to you in English. They speak to you in that local language. They're like, you know, and then they, and then when you don't respond in a local language, you know how people are when they think somebody's being uppity? Yeah, yeah. What, you can't talk? <laughs> <laughs> you can't. <laughs> that, that leads to another question I wanted to ask you because your upcoming book, Sacred Nile, uh, chronicles the African influence on Western religions. Now, I'm not sure how many African-Americans know or appreciate that fact. How, how did you come to that? I came to it accidentally. My really? first trip in 73, I made two trips that really changed my life. One, the uh, the secretary of Malcolm X, Peter Bailey. Oh yeah, I know Peter. Was in, at, at Ebony, arranged for me to go to Egypt. He was going to Egypt on a, a press junket. He arranged for me to come telling the people, the TWA, look, this guy can make pictures for a brochure. I got on that trip. I, I get there early in the morning. I come out on, a, on the patio of this hotel about 20 feet up, cause, and I hear all this noise down below, and I come to look at the noise, and my eye got hung in the, in, on the horizon with this pyramid that's eight miles away, mm. 34 stories high, just commanding the horizon. I didn't think it'd get any better until we went to Luxor and you get to the temples and it's in these humongous temples that are 30 stories high, stone mm -hmm. columns that are made and you see the image of the people who made them. And the images of these people are black people. And I was like, where are these people? How do, is it, I don't know about these people. When I first went to Ethiopia and I photographed Haile Selassie and I came back, I was very moved with Haile Selassie. Never met a, never encountered a person like this. And I told a friend of mine, and he said, well, you know, there's these people who believe that Haile Selassie is a Christ-like figure of God. I said, what? <laughs> it's totally revolutionary. He said, well, there's this musician, Bob Marley. I said, what does he do? He said, I'll come over, I'll play your music. I heard Bob Marley. I started researching. I found out about Naya Bengay, that the Rasa soul. I went to Naya Bengay for a week. And then I tried to get Bob. And the day I went to Bob's, another trip in Jamaica, went to Bob's studio. He had just finished Could You Be Loved. He had left the day before to Zimbabwe for the, for the independence celebration. Yeah. But these guys, they have brought back the possibility that divinity could look like us. Now, I wanted to wrap this up by asking you about Bob Marley, 
because you did eventually take what I consider to be an iconic picture of Bob Marley performing at Madison Square Garden. I had met him a couple of days before that when he came to the radio station. Um, but you caught him in a way that I don't think I've ever seen another photograph of Bob Marley that way. How, how did that photograph come about? Well, I, I'm using my press pass. I get up close enough, you know, to make a picture, but it came about because of Bob, I'm not Rasta, mm -hmm. but Bob and I love the same man. Holly Selassie, it's, it's no way to explain the, the kind of magnitude of the personality that Haile Selassie held and its effect on people around him. Bob Marley was a great proponent that made people understand that Haile Selassie existed. Mm. And I, having been in Haile Selassie's presence for a week photographing him and realizing the importance of him to his country, to his culture, Bob Marley and I, wanted, we were both how do I say propagandists on the same team? <laughs> the name of the exhibition is Indelible Spirit. Yes. It's at the Bruce Silverstein Gallery in Chelsea in New York. Uh, those of you who are in New York or have a chance to get to New York, how, how long does it run? It runs till early June? It runs till the 26th and it's, on, it's at 529 West 20th Street and it runs to June 26th. That's the block between 10th and 11th Avenue. Okay, and when is the book coming out? The book is going to drop in October. October. Maybe, Sacred Nile. Huh? In the Sacred, Sacred Nile. And you, you can pre-order it, you know, from now or August on uh, Amazon or on um, sacrednilebook.com or bookch.com. Uh, but um, it's it's a, first my first book of complete color. Uh, mm. And it's 50 years of work. Our ancestors left these messages in stone. This is your sacred heritage. And when you know about it, your chest will just pop out a little, a little uh, greater. All right. Chester Higgins, thank you so much. It's been a real honor talking with you. I appreciate it. Thank you, my brother. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well. <laughs>